Section twenty six of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Milton's granddaughter, Itard forty one. Lauder's imposition, Anno Domini seventeen fifty one. His just abhorrence of Milton's political notions was ever strong. But this did not prevent his warm admiration of Milton's great poetical merit, to which he has done illustrious justice beyond all who have written upon the subject. And this year he not only wrote a prologue, which was spoken by Mr. Garrick before the acting of Comus at Drury Lane Theatre, for the benefit of Milton's granddaughter, but took a very zealous interest in the success of the charity. Footnote. In 1750, April V, Comus was played for her benefit. She had so little acquaintance with diversion or gaiety that she did not know what was intended when a benefit was offered her. The profits of the night were only £130, though Dr. Newton brought a large contribution and £20 were given by Tonson, a man who is to be praised as often as he is named. This was the greatest benefaction that Paradise Lost ever procured the author's descendants. And to this he who has now attempted to relate his life had the honour of contributing a prologue. Johnson's Works, Volume 7, page 118. In the Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 20, page 152, we read that as on April the 4th, the night first appointed, many inconvenient circumstances happened to disappoint the hopes of success, the managers generously quitted the profits of another night in which the theatre was expected to be fuller. Mr. Samuel Johnson's prologue was afterwards printed for Mrs. Foster's benefit. End of footnote. On the day preceding the performance, he published the following letter in the General Advertiser addressed to the printer of that paper. Sir, that a certain degree of reputation is acquired merely by approving the works of genius and testifying a regard to the memory of authors is a truth too evident to be denied and therefore to ensure a participation of fame with a celebrated poet many who would perhaps have contributed to starve him when alive have heaped expensive pageants upon his grave footnote johnson is thinking of pope's lines but still the great have kindness in reserve he helped to bury whom he helped to starve prologue to the satires book one line two four seven in the life of milton he writes in our time a monument has been erected in westminster abbey to the author of paradise lost by mr benson who has in the inscription bestowed more words upon himself than upon milton johnson's works volume seven page one one two pope has a hit at benson in the dunciad book three line three two five on poets' tombs, see Benson's titles writ. 
Moore, describing Sheridan's funeral, says, It was well remarked by a French journal in contrasting the penury of Sheridan's later years with the splendour of his funeral, that France is the place for a man of letters to live in, and England the place for him to die in. Moore himself wrote, How proud they can press to the funeral array of him whom they shunned in his sickness and sorrow. How bailiffs may seize his last blanket to-day, whose pall shall be held up by nobles to-morrow. Moore Sheridan, volume 2, pages 4602, end of footnote. It must indeed be confessed that this method of becoming known to posterity with honour is peculiar to the great, or at least to the wealthy, but an opportunity now offers for almost every individual to secure the praise of paying a just regard to the illustrious dead, united with the pleasure of doing good to the living. To assist industrious indigence, struggling with distress and debilitated by age, is a display of virtue and an acquisition of happiness and honour. Whoever then would be thought capable of pleasure in reading the works of our incomparable Milton, and not so destitute of gratitude as to refuse to lay out a trifle in rational and elegant entertainment for the benefit of his living remains, for the exercise of their own virtue, the increase of their reputation and the pleasing consciousness of doing good should appear at Drury Lane Theatre tomorrow, April the 5th, when Comus will be performed for the benefit of Mrs. Elizabeth Foster, granddaughter to the author, and the only surviving branch of his family. Notabene there will be a new prologue on the occasion written by the author of Irene and spoken by Mr. Garrick, and by particular desire there will be added to the mask a dramatic satire called Lethe, in which Mr. Garrick will perform. Douglas's Milton No Plagiary, Itard 42. 1751, Itard 42. In 1751, footnote, among the advertisements in the Gentleman's Magazine for February of this year is the following. An elegy wrote in a country churchyard, sixpence. End footnote. We are to consider him as carrying on both his dictionary and rambler. But he also wrote the life of Chanel, asterisk, in the miscellany called The Student, and the Reverend Dr. Douglas, having with uncommon acuteness clearly detected a gross forgery and imposition upon the public by William Lauder, a Scotch schoolmaster who had with equal impudence and ingenuity represented Milton as a plagiary from certain modern Latin poets, Johnson, who had been so far imposed upon as to furnish a preface and postscript to his work, now dictated a letter for Lauder addressed to Dr. Douglas, acknowledging his fraud in terms of suitable contrition. Footnote. 
lest there should be any person at any future period absurd enough to suspect that johnson was a partaker in lord's fraud or had any knowledge of it when he assisted him with his masterly pen it is proper here to quote the words of dr douglas now bishop of salisbury at the time when he detected the imposition it is to be hoped nay it is expected that the elegant and nervous writer whose judicious sentiments and inimitable style point out the author of lauder's preface and postscript will no longer allow one to plume himself with his feathers who appeareth so little to deserve in square brackets his assistance an assistance which i am persuaded would never have been communicated had there been the least suspicion of those facts which i have been the instrument of conveying to the world in these sheets milton no plagiary second edition page seventy eight and his lordship has been pleased now to authorise me to say in the strongest manner that there is no ground whatever for any unfavourable reflection against dr johnson who expressed the strongest indignation against lord boswell to this letter lord had the impudence to add a shameless postscript and some testimonies concerning himself though on the face of it is evident that this postscript is not by johnson yet it is included in his works volume five page two eight three the letter was dated december the twentieth seventeen fifty in the gentleman's magazine for the next month volume twenty one page forty seven there is the following paragraph mr lauder confesses here and exhibits all his forgeries for which he assigns one motive in the book and after asking pardon assigns another in the postscript he also takes an opportunity to publish several letters and testimonials to his former character goldsmith in retaliation has a hit at lauder here douglas retires from his toils to relax the scourge of impostors the terror of quacks new lauders and bowers the tweed shall cross over no countryman living their tricks to discover dr douglas was afterwards bishop of salisbury ante page one two seven see post june twenty fifth seventeen sixty three for the part he took in exposing the cock lane ghost imposture end of footnote johnson tricked by lauder anno domini seventeen fifty one this extraordinary attempt of lauder was no sudden effort he had brooded over it for many years and to this hour it is uncertain what his principal motive was unless it were a vain notion of his superiority in being able by whatever means to deceive mankind to effect this he produced certain passages from grotius Mecenius and others which had a faint resemblance to some parts of the paradise lost in these he interpolated some fragments of hogs 
latin translation of that poem alleging that the mass thus fabricated was the archetype from which milton copied footnote scott writing to southey in eighteen ten said a witty rogue the other day who sent me a letter signed detector proved me guilty of stealing a passage from one of vida's latin poems which i had never seen or heard of the passage alleged to be stolen ends with when pain and anguish wring the brow a ministering angel thou which in vida aderana melody two verse twenty one ran cum dolor atque supercilio gravis iminet ango fungeris angelico sola ministerio it is almost needless to add says mr lockhart there are no such lines life of scott volume three page two nine four into footnote these fabrications he published from time to time in the gentleman's magazine and exulting in his fancied success he in seventeen fifty ventured to collect them into a pamphlet entitled an essay on milton's use and imitation of the moderns in his paradise lost to this pamphlet johnson wrote a preface Footnote. the greater part of this preface was given in the gentleman's magazine for august seventeen forty seven volume seventeen page four o four into footnote in full persuasion of lauder's honesty and a postscript recommending in the most persuasive terms a subscription for the relief of a granddaughter of milton Footnote. persuasive is scarcely a fit description for this noble outburst of indignation on the part of one who knew all the miseries of poverty after quoting dr newton's account of the distress to which milton's granddaughter had been reduced he says that this relation is true cannot be questioned but surely the honour of letters the dignity of sacred poetry the spirit of the english nation and the glory of human nature require that it should be true no longer in an age which amidst all its vices and all its follies has not become infamous for want of charity it may be surely allowed to hope that the living remains of milton will be no longer suffered to languish in distress johnson's works volume five page two seventy and a footnote a subscription for the relief of a granddaughter of milton of whom he thus speaks it is yet in the power of a great people to reward the poet whose name they boast and from their alliance to whose genius they claim some kind of superiority to every other nation of the earth that poet whose works may possibly be read when every other monument of british greatness shall be obliterated to reward him not with pictures or with medals which if he sees he sees with contempt but with tokens of gratitude which he perhaps may even now consider as not unworthy the regard of an immortal spirit johnson's admiration of milton i type forty two 
surely this is inconsistent with enmity towards milton which sir john hawkins footnote hawkins is johnson page two seventy five end of footnote imputes to johnson upon this occasion adding i could all along observe that johnson seemed to approve not only of the design but of the argument and seemed to exult in a persuasion that the reputation of milton was likely to suffer by this discovery that he was not privy to the imposture i am well persuaded but that he wished well to the argument may be inferred from the preface which indubitably was written by johnson is it possible for any man of clear judgment to suppose that johnson who so nobly praised the poetical excellence of milton in a postscript to this very discovery as he then supposed it could at the same time exult in the persuasion that the great poet's reputation was likely to suffer by it this is an inconsistency of which johnson was incapable nor can anything more be fairly inferred from the preface than that johnson who was alike distinguished for ardent curiosity and love of truth was pleased with an investigation by which both were gratified that he was actuated by these motives and certainly by no unworthy desire to depreciate our great epic poet is evident from his own words for after mentioning the general zeal of men of genius and literature to advance the honour and distinguish the beauties of paradise lost he says among the inquiries to which this ardour of criticism has naturally given occasion none is more obscure in itself or more worthy of rational curiosity than a retrospect footnote in the original retrospection johnson's works volume five page two six eight and footnote of the progress of this mighty genius in the construction of his work a view of the fabric gradually rising perhaps from small beginnings till its foundation rests in the centre and its turrets sparkle in the skies to trace back the structure through all its varieties to the simplicity of its first plan to find what was first projected whence the scheme was taken how it was improved by what assistance it was executed and from what stores the materials were collected whether its founder dug them from the quarries of nature or demolished other buildings to embellish his own is this the language of one who wished to blast the laurels of milton in this same year johnson thus ends a severe criticism on samson agonistes the everlasting verger of milton's laurels has nothing to fear from the blasts of malignity nor can my attempt produce any other effect than to strengthen their shoots by lopping their luxuriance the rambler number one hundred and forty mr nichols showed johnson in seventeen eighty a book called remarks on johnson's life of milton in which the affair of lauder was renewed with virulence 
he read the libelous passage with attention and instantly wrote on the margin in the business of lauder i was deceived partly by thinking the man too frantic to be fraudulent murphy's johnson page sixty six end of footnote mrs anna williams anno domini seventeen fifty one though johnson's circumstances were at this time far from being easy his humane and charitable disposition was constantly exerting itself mrs anna williams daughter of a very ingenious welsh physician and a woman of more than ordinary talents and literature having come to london in hopes of being cured of a cataract in both her eyes which afterwards ended in total blindness was kindly received as a constant visitor at his house while mrs johnson lived and after her death having come under his roof in order to have an operation upon her eyes performed with more comfort to her than in lodgings she had an apartment from him during the rest of her life at all times when he had a house Footnote. johnson turned his house writes lord macaulay into a place of refuge for a crowd of wretched old creatures who could find no other asylum nor could all their peevishness and ingratitude weary out his benevolence essays volume one page three ninety in his biography of johnson page three eight eight he says that mrs williams's chief recommendations were her blindness and her poverty no doubt in johnson's letters to mrs thrale are found amusing accounts of the discord of the inmates of his house but it is abundantly clear that in mrs williams's company he had for years found pleasure a few months after her death he wrote to mrs thrale you have more than once wondered at my complaint of solitude when you hear that i am crowded with visits in open me copia fecit visitors are no proper companions in the chamber of sickness the amusements and consolations of languor and depression are conferred by familiar and domestic companions such society i had with levitt and williams piozzi letters volume two page three four one to mrs montague he wrote thirty years and more she had been my companion and her death has left me very desolate croker's boswell page seven three nine boswell says that her departure left a blank in his house post august seventeen eighty three by her death writes murphy he was left in a state of destitution with nobody but his black servant to soothe his anxious moments murphy's johnson page one two two hawkins life page five five eight says that she had not only cheered him in his solitude and helped him to pass with comfort those hours which otherwise would have been irksome to him but had relieved him from domestic cares regulated and watched over the expenses of his house etc she had as boswell says post august seventeen eighty three valuable qualities 
had she had wrote johnson good humour and prompt elocution her universal curiosity and comprehensive knowledge would have made her the delight of all that knew her piozzi letters volume two page three eleven to langton he wrote i have lost a companion to whom i have had recourse for domestic amusement for thirty years and whose variety of knowledge never was exhausted post september the twenty ninth seventeen eighty three her acquisitions he wrote to dr burney were many and her curiosity universal so that she partook of every conversation post september seventeen eighty three murphy life page seventy two says she possessed uncommon talents and though blind had an alacrity of mind that made her conversation agreeable and even desirable according to hawkins life pages three two two to four she had acquired a knowledge of french and italian and had made great improvements in literature she was a woman of an enlightened understanding johnson in many exigencies found her an able counsellor and seldom showed his wisdom more than when he hearkened to her advice perhaps johnson had her in his thoughts when writing of pope's last years and martha blunt he said their acquaintance began early the life of each was pictured on the other's mind their conversation therefore was endearing for when they met there was an immediate coalition of congenial notions johnson's works volume eight page three o four Miss Mulso, Mrs. Chapone, writing to Mrs. Carter in 1753, says, I was charmed with Mr. Johnson's behaviour to Mrs. Williams, which was like that of a fond father to his daughter. She showed very good sense, with a great deal of modesty and humility, and so much patience and cheerfulness under her misfortune, that it doubled my concern for her. Mrs. Chapone's Life, page 73 miss talbot wrote to mrs carter in seventeen fifty six my mother the other day fell in love with your friend mrs williams whom we met at mr richardson's in square brackets where miss Malso also had met her and is particularly charmed with the sweetness of her voice talbot and carter correspondence volume two page thirty one miss talbot was a niece of lord chancellor talbot Hannah Moore wrote in 1774, Miss Williams is engaging in her manners, her conversation lively and entertaining. Moore's Memoirs, Volume 1, page 49. Boswell, however, more than once complains that she was peevish. Post October the 26th, 1769, on April the 7th, 1776 at a time when she was very ill and had gone into the country to try if she could improve her health johnson wrote age and sickness and pride have made her so peevish that i was forced to bribe the maid to stay with her by a secret stipulation of half a crown a week over her wages post july the twenty second seventeen seventy seven 
malone in a note on august the second seventeen sixty three says that he thinks she had of her own about thirty five or forty pounds a year this was in her latter days johnson had prevailed on garrick to give her a benefit and mrs montague to give her a pension she used he adds to help in the housework End of footnote. End of section 26.